0: Welcome to this Touch Podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Neurology. In this podcast, three experts outline the evidence for complement involvement in the pathogenesis of neuromyelitis optica-spectrum disorder and myasthenia gravis, review the markers of complement activation, and highlight the implications of the latest data for complement therapeutics for practice. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Alexion Pharmaceuticals. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME.
1: Hello, Uh, my name is Professor Saeed Beydoun. Today we will be discussing the complement system in NMOSD and uh, Myasthenia Gravis, a target for therapeutic benefit. I'm here with Professor Heinz Windel and Professor Pushpa Narayanaswamy Uh, we'll start discussing the role of complement in NMSOID and uh, MG pathophysiology. So there are three different pathways that activate complement. Today we're going to focus mainly on the classical pathway which is relevant to the disease state we're discussing today. Start with antigen binding to an antibody and then binding to C1Q and then activation of the complement cascade. All of these pathways result in the formation of C3 convertase that then break down C3 into C3A and C3B, then formation of C5 convertase that activate C5 and break it into C5A, uh, a powerful uh, inflammatory molecule, as well as C5B. C5B then unite uh, and combine with other uh, uh, complement components, results in the formation of the membrane attack complex that can bind to cell membrane and uh, result in cell lysis. So here we're talking about the role of complement activation in the pathogenesis of uh, both NMOSD and myasthenia Gravis. On the left side, you see NMOSD, where you have the production of aquaporin-4 antibodies in the periphery that cross the blood-brain barrier and activate complement, it's a, this, these are IgG isotype Uh, with complement activation, uh, uh, activation of C5, ultimately formation of the membrane attack complex, uh, which result in an astrocytopathy. But also, you have concomitant powerful inflammatory process that occur via C5A, and uh, these two processes continue in terms of uh, complement activation and inflammatory process that contribute to demyelination, oligodendrocyte dysfunction, and ultimately uh, cell uh, destruction. On the right side, you see the myasthenia gravis. We have breakdown of self-tolerance at the level of the thymus. Uh, B cells uh, produce antibodies. Uh, These are acetylcholine receptor antibodies. We're talking about the binding antibodies, the specific isotype that can activate uh, uh, complement via the classical complement pathway and uh, ultimately uh, acting on C5, resulting in the formation of membrane attack complex that can uh, uh, destroy the postsynaptic uh, muscle membrane, simplify it, and then uh, uh, contribute to the pathophysiology of uh, uh, myasthenia gravis. So, uh, we'll turn to our uh, esteemed colleague, uh, Professor Wendell, and Professor Narayana Swamy, and we, we have questions from our audience. So first question, and it's really, I can address it to both of you. Uh, How does uh, complement activation uh, differ in patients with NMOSD and those with myasthenia gravis, and what are the triggers? So maybe Heinz, if you want to take this first, and then uh, Pushpa.
2: Yeah, thanks, Said. So I I, I might kind of give it a start. So first of all, one uh, disease happens in the central nervous system, the other is in the uh, neuromuscular compartment. Um, if you look at the homogeneity of the diseases, well, the thinking is that NMOSD is a much more homogeneous and much more homogeneously complement-depending entity, where the complement activation also triggers the cascade of inflammatory waves that in the end lead to this destructive NMOSD-like relapses, while Mg is not in all cases completely complement-driven, particularly when it comes to other isotypes and other antigens. Um, and uh, there is more a continuous, but not a complement priming element in Mg. So that would be one answer I could give.
1: Great. Thank you, Pushpa. I think the additional
3: point that I would make is that uh, in Mg, we typically don't see inflammatory reactions in the at the neuromuscular junction, whereas, as you said, in NMOSD, uh, the C5 component or complement uh, activates neutrophils and macrophages to the site of the problem, which is the spinal cord, uh, and we do see inflammation there. So it's just another minor
1: difference there, I think. Great, great, thank you. Uh, and, uh... And then the point uh, that can be made that uh, antibody in NMOSD tend to be uh, tend to activate complement uh, uh, whereas in myasthenia gravis we have different kind of autoantibodies some that are blocking or antigen modulating and then the binding so uh, the the pathophysiology can be different. Uh, The second question is uh, again for you Pushpa uh, do you do you know if there are differences in the complement pattern And uh, in myasthenia gravis meaning the generalized versus the ocular one.
3: And this is an area of intense uh, research now in terms of looking at complement profiles in the blood. Uh, And Dr. Gaza has done some work on this as well. Uh, I do think that uh, the interest that we have in terms of why ocular muscles are most frequently involved uh, is something that we've wondered about for a long time. And I think there are various reasons complement being one of them. Uh, One reason is that these muscles uh, tend to have a lower density of acetylcholine receptors. But at the same time, they are highly active. They contract very uh, rapidly, so they tend to be fatigued easily. And they tend to have less resistance to intrinsic complement activation because there are these regulatory proteins, so complement regulators, uh, if you will, that are present at neuromuscular junctions that prevent the activation of complement. And there are animal studies that show that uh, the extraocular muscles may not have as much expression of these regulators, and therefore they are prone to complement mediated damage. So some intrinsic factors in the ocular muscles themselves.
1: Great great point, Pushpa. And really this, uh, uh, you know, what we think is that there are are differences between the extraocular muscles and other muscles, particularly in terms of the uh, geometry of the postsynaptic fold, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, surface area uh, between those muscles and the other muscles, as well as the physiology of the extraocular muscles in terms of uh, firing rate, and the great point you brought about the uh, the regulation of complement uh, activation, which differs between those two set of muscles. We can move on to question number three, and this is. Is complement activation characteristic of other autoimmune CNS disorder? And I'll pose this question to you, uh, Dr. Wendel.
2: Yeah, I would clearly say yes. I think there is an increasing notion that many neuroimmunological or neurological conditions could be also considered complementopathies, where complement activation plays a more or less dominant role and therefore is a therapeutic target Uh, It certainly depends on, as I said, the type of the antibody that plays a role, whether it is known or not known. For example, in multiple sclerosis, there's there's certainly a complement activation. We don't know uh, the the prime target of antibody responses, either being primary or secondary. But, and that is, I think, uh, the aspect that I would like to highlight, um, in any disease where there is a relevant antibody component and where is the, the appropriate isotype, and that is mainly IDG1, there is a likelihood that complement activation plays a pathogenetic role that might be more or less dominant to the clinical symptomatology.
1: Great. Thank you. And, and I can add here, and Pushpav can all agree with me. Uh, Really, the the question should be complement activation. Is it characteristic of other autoimmune peripheral nervous system disorders? So we know in Guillain-Barre syndrome, multifocal motor neuropathy, uh, even CIDP, where complement activation plays an important role. But uh, that will be uh, another uh, uh, discussion uh, if we need to go into that. uh, the first question is, what proportion of patients with NMOSD and myasthenia have complement-driven disease? So, uh, Pushpa, uh, would you want to, to comment on that, as far as myasthenia?
3: Sure. I'll take the myasthenia piece here, um, and again, it depends. Uh, so we're talking about acetylcholine uh, receptor antibody-positive myasthenics here. So we've already narrowed down our proportion, About we know that 80% or so of, acetyl- of uh, myasthenics generalized mycena gravis have acetylcholine receptor antibodies. And even in those, I think we mentioned this earlier briefly, uh, there are the antibodies uh, seem to have different functions. We concentrate on complement here, but there are also antibodies that modulate the acetylcholine receptor and uh, 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 internally degrade uh, uh, these receptors uh, and therefore uh, have a role in the pathogenesis. There are also blocking antibodies that block the acetylcholine binding sites by steric hindrance and so complement is the third uh, or if you will another uh, pathogenic mechanism uh, that the acetylcholine receptor antibodies uh, cause disease these by i'm not aware of actual formal numbers that we know that in this proportion of patients we have complement inhibition as a primary process but i think it's uh, good to keep in mind that these people uh, may have other mechanisms as well. And of course, we already talked about other antigens towards which the antibodies are directed must LRP four; These are not complement activating diseases. I'll turn it over to Niles for uh, the NMOSD question.
2: Yeah, I I would would add here that we don't know from really biological assessments, but we could use uh, the application of reverse translational knowledge that means learning pathogenesis via therapeutic intervention. And the lessons learned here is that you're able to really silence NMOs with complement inhibiting agents by nearly 100%, which means that probably nearly 100% of the uh, relapse driving pathology is complement dependent. This is not that much the case in myasthenia, although the treatment effect per se is impressive, but we have a couple of patients that simply do not respond. So, my answer would be the proportion of patients in NMS, uh, NMSD probably approximately close to
3: 100%. Yeah, and I agree with that assessment in uh, myasthenia as
1: well. I mean, not everybody responds. That's, that's true. And it, if we knew the proportion of patients with myasthenia of complement-driven disease, we could predict uh, the potential role of C5 blockers in myasthenia. And that's something we will be learning about. And it may come up in future questions in this presentation. Uh, thank, you. thank you both for this. Now we will be discussing uh, complement activation as a biomarker in NMOSD and myasthenia gravis. So, uh, what are the markers of complement activation in NMOSD and myasthenia? So, in NM- NMOSD, these are uh, IgG1, uh, predominantly antibody. These are the isotype. They are uh, antibodies against the water channel protein, aquaporin-4, which is highly expressed in the astrocyte muscle membrane, in the optic nerve, in the spinal cord. And they're highly specific for that disease. Uh, Important to note is that the titers do correlate with the disease course and the higher levels have been associated with attacks and uh, patients who are aquaporin-4 positive are at risk for relapses and therefore require a preventive treatment. And uh, uh, to note also that patients who are negative for both aquaporin-4 and MOG antibodies are termed zero negative NMOSD. In myasthenia gravis, Again, the acetylcholine receptor antibodies are highly specific for myasthenia. These are uh, the binding antibodies. And again, the isotypes are IgG1 and IgG3 that are powerful activators of the classical complement pathways. Uh, as mentioned earlier, that there is the musk antibody. These are IgG4. They do not bind to C1Q effectively, and therefore they weakly activate complement. And uh, there is no role for complement uh, Uh, directed therapy in this condition and uh, therefore it's important to stratify the patient and likelihood of treatment response will vary depending on the antibody type. Uh, I'll move on to uh, my uh, uh, colleagues and we'll uh, go to our panel discussion and the questions posed from our audience again uh, 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 related specifically to the diagnostic and prognostic biomarker in those two disease states. so again uh, the questions to professor wendell how specific or reliable a biomarker are the antibodies against aquaporin-4 antibodies and number two do they indicate the extent of complement activation
2: uh, first of all it's a diagnostic marker First and foremost, we have aquaporin-4-negative cases of NMOSD, where we don't know uh, what it is, but they are clearly also NMOSD. What we do not have is a clear correlation of the existence of the antibody, as opposed to the titer of the antibody, as opposed to the functional relevance of the complement. Um, And and that is exactly a question for, for research my take on that would be as i i would assume that most of it is really complement activating but not in each individual at the same extent that the rough assumption is that is a that it is first and foremost a diagnostic biomarker with a good correlation that this is a biomarker also indicating a, a relevant complement activation but the direct measurability is lacking
1: Great, great. So what's the percentage of patients with NMOSD who are aquaporin-4 positive?
2: More than 90%.
1: More than 90%. And is there a difference between uh, aquaporin-4 positive versus aquaporin-4 negative uh, patients in their clinical
2: Clinically, uh, not really, I have to say. Um, So it's, it's simply harder to diagnose them, but otherwise they fulfill the same a clinical spectrum of symptoms and paraclinical manifestation in terms of MRI, lesions, etc.
1: Great, thank you. The second question is to you, Pushpa. How sensitive are receptor antibodies for GMG? GMG is generalized myasthenia gravis. And then the second part of it is that can they be used as a specific biomarker to confirm diagnosis as well as for prognostication?
3: Uh, and so we have two issues here, the sensitivity and the specificity and diagnosis versus prognosis. Uh, in terms of sensitivity, I think the numbers for uh, the routine um, uh, RIPA, radioimmunoprecipitation assay, uh, acetylcholine receptor antibodies, really hasn't changed over time. You know, 80% of patients with generalized myasthenia gravis, about 50% or so of patients with myasthenia gravis have the antibodies. Now, how specific are they and that's a different question uh i recently wrote an editorial based on a paper from Yubing lee at the cleveland clinic regarding the specificity of diagnosis and i think it's really an important question because when we have extremely low titers in the interest of time i'm going to be very brief extremely low titers of acetylcholine receptor antibodies we do have to be very careful about the diagnosis and it's never based on an antibody. It's always based on the clinical picture that supports the antibody test. You know, especially in the lower ends of the spectrum. You know, less there are various cutoffs, less cutoffs for this, less than 0.1 nanomoles, less than 0.02 nanomoles. The other issue is the combination of acetylcholine receptor antibody positivity and modulating antibody positivity increases that specificity by about five percent. So that's Especially when you strongly uh, clinically suspected, so I would say you we'll have to use that pretest probability, you know, almost like a Bayesian clinical analysis to say, well, this is a, a, a the specificity goes up, but uh, the higher your pretest probability is. In terms of prognosis, that's another story because we know that although generally, you know, acetylcholine receptor antibodies uh, tend to be higher with more severe weakness or tend to be uh, higher in less well-controlled disease. I think we all agree that this is not a prognostic marker as it is at the time being. Perhaps cell-based antibodies will be a different story, but at this time, not many of us use uh, them serially to look at the disease.
1: Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Great, great answer. And uh, this really question number three is to both of you. Uh, how about patients who are autoantibody negative? I may have asked you this question, Heinz, earlier. And does it infer that complement inhibition treatment should not be used? And then again, I'll pose it to you to push for, but we can have like a brief answer on that.
2: Well, they are not only a diagnostic problem, probably more in the case of NMOSD than in the case of MGE. And they are a problem for the reason that Complement inhibition as a therapeutic group is not approved. Um, I personally feel this is for good reasons because we don't simply have very good evidence what's going on. For me personally, the pathomechanism mechanism and the treatment scenario for um, serum negative MG is pretty similar to acetylcholine receptor positive, but I don't use complement inhibitors. And the same is true for NMOSD, that would be my answer.
3: Great, thank you. And Pushpa, you want to... Yeah, I agree with that brief answer. So if you take it from the standpoint that we've got a diagnosis, so first thing is we've got to be definite about the diagnosis using various other modalities in these patients. And if they once we have the diagnosis and we really know that they're zero negative, again, that means looking for other antibodies, repeating the antibodies in six months, etc., if you really know that they're negative, I agree that they tend to act like a acetylcholine receptor antibody positive myosinogravis, and my treatment is the same, except that no payer in the United States
1: will cover the complement inhibitors because they're not formally approved for this group. Great, great. Uh, yeah, that would be an important issue. Most importantly, as you mentioned, making sure that those patients who are seronegative do not have antibody to musk. Because these patients typically do not respond to complement inhibition treatment, and that was mentioned. And number four, are there any other diagnostic or prognostic markers that could be used in the clinic? So again, a brief answer from either one of you.
2: Pushpa, do you want to start?
1: Sure.
3: Diagnosis, you know, obviously <laughs> in my cinegravis, you're talking electrodiagnosis, you know, other modalities, and obviously imaging for NMO spectrum disorders. I'm assuming so diagnostic. In terms of prognostic biomarkers, I think we are, we are a little bit more stuck. I mean, we still would depend on our clinical uh, progression, our clinical endpoints, treatment goals, etc. And Mycena gravis. I think a lot of these are in development. Uh, there are um, um, uh, several uh, biomarkers, um, including um, microRNA profiles, etc. that are being developed. But I don't know that we have anything at this time other than a good clinical biomarker for myosinogravus.
1: That's great. And uh, Heinz?
2: Very briefly, I don't think there is uh, anything yet to be reliably usable in the clinic. There is a lot going on in research, so my answer would be a bit disappointing. We are good in diagnostic, not really good in terms of prognostic.
1: Great, great. Thank you so much. These are great answers. So our topic here is complement as a therapeutic target for the treatment of NMOSD and myasthenia. Complement directed treatment in NMOSD and in my, generalized myasthenia. Fortunately, they exist and we can use them. Uh, the, we have ecluzumab, which is a monoclonal antibody against C5. It's a C5 inhibitor. It's uh, approved uh, 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 in, in the United States and in Europe for the uh, treatment of NMOSD based on the uh, prevent study, these are aquaporin for individual patients, 2 to 1 randomization, and it shows during the duration of the study there was 94% relapse rate reduction with ecluzumab versus placebo. There is the uh, newer molecule, ravulizumab, which is a long-acting ecluzumab, where there have been four amino acid modifications of the molecule, which result in a longer half-life, uh, almost four times, uh, and uh, Uh, the champion NMOSD study. It's approved in Europe, not yet approved in the United States, but based on that study, which was an open-label study, 58 patients on ravilizumab and an external placebo comparator, again significant uh, relapse rate reduction, uh, 98.6%. In generalized myasthenia gravis, uh, uh, we have those two uh, drugs approved uh, in the United States, And as well as they approved in Europe, we have ecluzumab, which is a C5 inhibitor, again, based on the REGAIN study, which was done in refractory patients, and the open-label extension, which showed 75% relapse rate reduction from the study start uh, uh, for patients who were on the active drug versus placebo. The ravuluzumab, which is, again, uh, uh, the study was labeled the Champion MG study, double blind, one to one randomization. Uh, what was found in that study? There was a rapid and sustained reduction in MG activity of daily living, known as MGADL improvement versus placebo, that was maintained throughout the duration of the study and met its primary endpoint. Uh, there are newer uh, C5 blockers being developed. One of them is zilucoplan, which is a, a macrocyclic peptide that blocks C5, and uh, it's still not yet FDA approved. And it's uh, based on a study, a phase 3 study, uh, uh, that in uh, moderate to severe myasthenia gravis, where it showed we know the data has been uh, 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 known, and there is improvement in MGADL versus placebo over 12 week period. So I'll move now to uh, discussion uh, uh, points uh, based from our audience. And again, uh, we really the point here is uh, we want to know about approved and uh, potential future medications or inhibitors of the complement system for the treatment of both disorders. And again, the first question is to both of you, Pushpa and Heinz, is how effective are complement inhibitors in NMOSD and myasthenia? Uh, second, point of that question, which patient shows the most benefit? And number three, how do they differ from other therapies that target the immune system? So again, uh, we'll start with you, Pushpa, and then we can go to, to Heinz.
3: Sure. Thank you. So I'll start with the last of these questions. So how do they differ from other therapies? Because I think they inform the other two questions. Uh, they differ from other therapies because what do they do? They uh, attack the final common pathway, if you will, of mycena gravis pathogenesis. They really don't do anything to the upstream pathway. They don't do anything to the T cell uh, uh, that helps the B cell to develop the antibodies. They don't do anything to the autoimmune response in the thymus. So that's important to understand. So the upstream pathogenesis is not affected. Uh, and how effective are they? As the results were quite. Uh, uh, quite amazing, if, if you will. I mean, this is the first time we've seen drugs that act very quickly. So that's one thing about these drugs. You start seeing the response within two weeks. That's really unknown uh, in other medications of myasthenia, except for perhaps for steroids And then the response is kicked in by four weeks in a vast majority of patients. So really quick response and a robust response, sustained response. Uh, and which patients show more benef- most benefit? I think we're still sort of looking at this. We do know that they have to be acetylcholine receptor antibody positive. There may be some data that the earlier you start treatments and treat them more aggressively, uh, patients get better, not just with uh, complement inhibitors, but in general, but that sort of soft data there. I'll turn it over to Heinz here.
2: Yeah, I have to say that for NMOSD, I I feel this is one of the most impressive study data that you uh, can think of in neuroimmunology because you can think of uh, rather not what is the effect size, you can rather think in what went wrong in the few cases where there were still relapses left. And I mean, in the first trial with ecolithymal, that was three cases, and you could ask yourself whether they were somewhat weird means that you get something to a close to 100 percent which is very rare in medicine response rate uh, even if it's just uh, about 90 percent and that is unprecedented i would say which speaks towards uh, that really hits the target and that is really transforming because in nms doing as as you pointed correctly out in your introduction uh, every relapse is destructive and should be prevented so it's really a, a transformative treatment intervention and uh, another aspect is the fast onset of action, as already pointed out. I mean, complement inhibition takes action within hours to days, which is very different from other things like B-cell depletion or even interleukin-6 uh, modulation.
1: Great, great. Thank you. And we have seen that, I've witnessed that in clinical practice, where really we can get benefit fairly quickly in certain patients to as you mentioned, within days. And that has been correlated in the clinical trial where there is uh, immediate uh, uh, reduction and uh, undetectable C5-free level uh, even after the first infusion, which really attests to this fast mechanism of action. The second question, again, that can be quick, what are the main safety concerns and uh, mitigation strategy, monitoring requirement, pre-treatment basis? So any one of you can answer that.
3: can take that quickly. I think the main issue that uh, we should remember here is the uh, potential for meningococcal infections and, of course, immunization and, if necessary, uh, uh, prophylaxis, antibiotic prophylaxis. I think uh, I'll just stop there in the interest of time.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, 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 And number three, how can we best implement complement inhibitors into care pathways for NMOSD and myasthenia dosing regimen, uh, that the uh, third element of that question uh, apply more to uh, NMOSD. What about patients who received uh, prior like B-cell directed therapy, B-cell depletion treatment, any any gap in the knowledge? And really the important is how can we stratify patients and is there an algorithm that we can develop uh, uh, so that we know how to treat our patient better? So maybe uh, Heinz, you can start on this.
2: Yeah, I might start. I think complement inhibitors came, uh, particularly MG, from a pretty small niche that was refractory myasthenia. So when everything went already wrong, you would then consider complement inhibitors. I disagree with this view because I think best possible disease control should also be achieved in MG. In NMLSD, this is a bit different than here. It is even approved now as a first-line therapy, well, although not all um, physicians agree that this can be used or should be used in first-line. On the other hand, I'm asking myself, what would be the argument uh, not to consider a, th- a patient that has a nearly relapsing NMOSV with complement inhibition, because in model therapy, which is uh, unique enough, you can control the disease. So. I think we're still in the phase of figuring out uh, where is the place and just by setting the treatment aim of best possible disease control my take on it is i assume they will get used or be at least considered earlier and earlier particularly in severe manifestations of the diseases animals and mg
1: Great, great. And and the, uh, the, the question about patients who receive prior B-cell treatment, how long do you wait before you, you start patients uh, on uh, complement blockers? Or are there special precautions specifically that these patients would need vaccination? I, I think this is an important question that come in the clinic.
2: They clearly need vaccination for meningococci, uh, or they need antibo- antibiotic prophylaxis. But on the other hand, I think the disease activity Uh, gives the pressure. I mean, formally, you would say until you can evaluate whether B-cell depletion really takes action and works, um, takes at least six months, but sometimes you don't have the time. So if the patient is is really bad, you might do it uh, earlier, and then I don't see a conflict in getting uh, um, complement inhibition on board earlier.
1: Okay, great, great. And Pushpa, do do you have comment on that?
3: Uh, I agree. I mean, then the one other issue I think uh, that is sort of moving the needle, if you will, uh, is the side effects of other medications or comorbidities with patients. So where we don't really want to use some of those other medications, patients who have diabetes, you know, that kind of thing, or uh, who have liver dysfunction where we don't want to use azepioprine or mycothenolate. So I think the side effect profile is also driving that needle towards uh, these drugs. In addition, because of that quick response, you know, we talk about this bridge therapy where we start them on this medication, we start them on other medications as well that may take longer time. So sort of just different areas of practice that I think we will learn as we go along.
1: Great, thank you. And and the last question is, uh, you know, we talked about mechanism of action of available compound inhibitors, uh, at least for those two disorders, our C5 blocker we know there are emerging complement inhibitors that target other uh, components of the complement uh, uh, cascade. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, if you want to comment on that, and uh, what could be uh, the potential role of newer therapy uh, in that regard? So uh, again, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Wendel. Um,
2: this is a field of, of high Um, intensity and dynamics. The new complement inhibitors are either different ways of application, so going sub-Q, different uh, types of molecules, not classical antibodies with different half lives, but uh, macrocyclic peptides as you presented. There is another uh, way of development, it's different um, components within the complement system, particularly uh, getting around on the problem that you're inhibiting the lectin pathway, which then gives you a certain predisposition for meningococcal infection susceptibility. So newer complement inhibitors, try to be more specific in inhibiting just the um, alternative pathway. Um, and, and that might give them even a better safety profile. So I think there is a lot to come um, and that might provide also advantages in terms of the usability.
1: Thank you, thank you. And Pushpa, you have a few words on that?
3: Uh, Not much, I agree. I think the importance is that we are going more proximally up in the uh, complement pathway towards the C3 convertase and sort of uh, using multiple compounds at the C3 convertase level rather than at C5 convertase.
1: That's true, and and that can apply to other disease states like uh, Guillain-Barre and uh, multifocal motor neuropathy, uh, proximal uh, part of the complement. uh, uh, and we do have uh, a complement inhibitor that really affect mainly C5a in uh, the ANCA vasculitis so also important to note that but uh, you know these could have potential role in uh, uh, those two disease states in the future thank you so much uh, for uh, this uh, and uh, thank you for watching this discussion about the complement system in NMOSD and myasthenia uh, we hope it has been useful for you And please watch other videos in this activity and download the slides.
0: Thank you for listening to this TOUCH podcast. You can access more content on this and related topics on TOUCH Neurology at www.touchneurology.com. Do keep checking back for updates as we launch further activities on autoimmune neurological disorders.